Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures tonight. Uh, I am flying solo. However, we're going to jump right into things. As voted on you by you, the fans, uh, we are talking about Elizabeth Bathory tonight. And, you know, I had one expert in mind that uh, I had to get on the show. And i tell you what, uh, it's Kim Craft. And, Kim, uh, I know you're here, so I just wanted to say it was harder than you would expect to track you, track you down, but I was glad I was able to. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you found me, and I'm I'm delighted to be here. And thank you so much for inviting me. Now, when I say you're an expert, you know I'm not throwing that around. Uh, so can you do me a favor and just kind of, uh, you know, I thought about going over your background myself, but who better than you to kind of explain, you know, what got you into the subject and and what your expertise is on the subject? Sure. Well, thank you for asking. Um, well, let's see. I. I, I like. I'm sure a lot of your listeners enjoy horror movies, and and I got interested in in uh, Elizabeth Bathory from a movie uh, back in the early '70s, uh, Countess Dracula, starring Ingrid Pitt. I, I want to say it came out around 1970 or 1971. I don't want to date myself and give away just how old I am. I will say <laughs> I didn't see it when it came out, but I was very very young, right? <laughs> and uh, the story kind of fascinated me. I, I thought, you know, it was a little, it seemed a little apocryphal, but it was intriguing. And then uh, I, you know, over time, uh, when I got older, started, you know, reading some of the things about uh, Countess Bathory. And, and, and it just got, it brought up so many questions, you know, um, things like, well, if she killed 650 people, how, you know, how did, where did she put all the bodies? How did nobody notice? You know, just these logistical questions. That so um, uh, my, my background, uh, actually, I, I was in Europe for a while and I studied law. And I kind of forgot about the Bathory legend uh, when I was in law school and, and getting in all, into all, all of that. But I, I did study, obviously, uh, crime, trial proceedings, you know, criminal procedure, civil procedure, all those sorts of classes. And uh, every Halloween, you know, it seemed like Bathory would come up again, and I'd, I'd go back to thinking about those original questions. And um, Raymond T. McNally's book uh, on Countess Bathory had come out by then. Uh, Tony Thorne's biography on her really, really wonderful books. And, you know, they, they started to present more of a realistic picture of her, and that also got me really thinking now from a legal perspective, wait a minute, um, if she really did commit these crimes, if she really did do these things, then from a legal standpoint, even though it's 400 years ago, there are some things that are still similar to what we do today. There would have been a trial. There would have been transcripts. There would have been depositions, interrogatories. People would have been questioned. There would have been inquests, hearings, things like that. Uh, and especially if she was as wealthy and powerful as the biographies say, you, you couldn't just lock her up without these proceedings. So that got me on the trail again of doing the research. I, I had started it, I would say, maybe, oh gosh, almost a little over 20 years ago when I was in Europe. I would go to the archives and request to see some of the, the original manuscripts because I was my, my thought has always been, if you want to know what really happened historically, you have to go to the original source material. 
So the funny thing was, though, um, you know, back in those days, I would get maybe an hour in the archive to, to look at these ancient manuscripts, you know, many of them. They're, they're, you know, 400 years old, and they're written in old Hungarian, old German, old Latin, and, and you know, they, they've been ravaged in some cases by time. There's holes in them. Uh, sometimes people's handwriting is, is, you know, horrible, just kind of as bad as today in some cases, although I will say Countess Bathory's handwriting is absolutely gorgeous. Her letters were very easy to read. Everybody else's, not not so much. And I'd get about an hour in the archive to look at these things, and they they literally bring me these documents wearing gloves. And and you know you couldn't touch them, you couldn't take pictures of them, nothing. And I you know I I'd be scribbling down everything I could, and then time was up, and they'd start to take them away, and I would say, no, wait, come back. You know, come on, who else wants to read this stuff? Come on, let me have another hour. And they'd say, no, you have to make another appointment. It was very frustrating. Um, so the good news is, you know, fast forward now, you know, 20-some years now to the present, and all of those documents, uh, it's effortless thanks to uh, the World Wide Web and technology. I simply uh, contacted the archives, you know, nowadays, uh, put in my request for the materials, and what they can do now is simply scan the documents, uh, send them to me on a CD, I pop it into the computer, and then I can literally sit and stare at them as long as I want. Um, the, the translation process, in fact, took a little over two years, but uh, I think I can fairly say that every piece of original source material known in the European archives in Budapest, in Vienna, I have, and I sat and translated them, uh, and, and the best of the best went into the book. Uh, a few didn't make it into the book that I wrote. They were uh, kind of trivial or, or you know, written by servants or just kind of household maintenance or purchases or things that are not really exciting or too relevant. But uh, the rest of it I, I put together, and uh, I, I think it really told I, I want to say a more of a, a better story of what really happened versus what had come down to us previously, which were were about 400 years of tantalizing uh, stories, but mostly myths or legends. So that, that's kind of where I'm at with it. <laughs> you know, you, you touched on so many things I want to talk about here. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start at square one. Um, you, you talked about the myths and legends. I, like many other people, am kind of a novice as far as Elizabeth Bathory goes. Like most people, you know, you see a History Channel documentary, you get, you know, excited about the, the subject right. at hand. You know, you've got somebody that, that they're sitting there telling you was one of the first vampires, quote unquote, things uh -huh. like that. And obviously, your yeah. interest gets yeah. peaked. You know how that is from the movie. Well, sure, sure. And, you know, I've done research, but again, I am absolutely a novice. But what I've learned through my research is that you know, concrete facts are hard to come by, and that's why I was so interested in your work because um, there's so many myths out there and there's so many things that people think they know, uh, you know, about the Countess, but they actually don't. And, and I'd kind of like you to kind of tell the story of her. And, you know, you've got as much time as you want to tell it, but, you know, tell it however you'd like or start wherever you'd like. Gee, there, you know, it, what a great question. There's, there's so many angles to approach. Um, I, I think what I'll do... You know, I know a lot of people love the stories about her, and she's featured so predominantly in um, not only horror movies, but 
I'm, I'm thinking there's an homage to her, for example, in um, uh, the Hostel, one of the Hostel movies. Hostel too. Uh huh. There's uh, another one in Staying Alive. Oh gosh, I want to say that uh, she's referenced in the video game uh, Castlevania. She, there's a a metal group named Bathory named after her, and and I think one of one of the most fun stories too is uh, supposedly the brothers Grimm had heard about her. Um, you know, and they're writing a couple hundred years later, but she supposedly is also the inspiration for the Wicked Queen in Snow White. Um, and where those stories come from is, I think, as we all know, uh, you know, the Wicked Queen hates Snow White because of her youth and her beauty. The Queen is obsessing about her age. She has this magic mirror she's constantly speaking to. And some of those legends get their start. Uh, there's one story that uh, Countess Bathory was becoming so enraged about her her advancing years that she went into a fit and smashed all the mirrors in her castle and so she couldn't see herself. And, and then there's another myth that said, well, you know, she actually worked magical spells with uh, a braided mirror that she had and she, you know, was cursing her enemies and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, so you, you can see where some of those things get going and the Brothers Grimm had a lot of fun um, with those, and I'm going to say it, those myths and legends, and, I, and I'll hope to clarify what really happened after I talk about the myths. Um, and then there's, uh, in, in the early 1800s, we're, we're at a time now where, you might want to say vampire mania is sweeping Europe. Uh, it, it really gets going in the late 1700s. Um, Countess Bathory dies in 1614. So by the late 17, early 1800s, we're, we're talking, you know, almost 200 years after she dies, you know, 100, 150, 100 years, give or take, depending when, you know, vampire mania is starting in the, in the 1700s and going into the 18s. And we start to get some wonderful Gothic novels coming out. Uh, one out of England is is a treatise on werewolves, and and actually mentions references Countess Bathory in it, talking about how uh, we get the original story about her obsession with blood and bathing in blood from this uh, English writer in in the 1800s, who's talking about uh, a story again that Countess Bathory is uh, being taken care of by one of her maids, and the maid is combing her hair, and uh, the maid kind of hits a snarl in the Countess's hair, and Countess Bathory wears very heavy rings and jewelry, and and it, it hurts when her hair gets pulled, and so in a fit of anger, she kind of backhands the servant girl, and her ring strikes the girl across the face and actually cuts her face, and then the story goes on to say that uh, blood comes out of the girl's face and actually now hits the countess in the face. And, you know, while the countess is, you know, you know, dabbing away this blood on her face, like, Ick, get it off me, she suddenly supposedly uh, happens to look in her mirror and realize all of her wrinkles have magically gone away with this amazing beauty elixir, as, as if any, you know, one of us could get one of these today, right? And um, so Countess Bathory immediately dabs more blood on her face and, and more wrinkles go away. And it's not just any blood. It has to be the blood of a young virgin girl, unmarried, never, you know, had relations and so on. And so then the legends start to just kind of go from there. 
that Countess Bathory now finds she's got this magic beauty cream. Um, <laughs> and so she, she starts, you know, you know, fetch me every young maiden girl in my service. I, I need, I need, I need a donation from them, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so then pretty soon her obsession with staying completely young turns from not just dabbing the blood on her face, but pretty soon she's got to have an entire, uh, bath in this. And she's now in the stories filling bathtubs of young girls' blood to, you know, preserve her immortal beauty. Um, <laughs> so you, this is, kind of where we start to get these these stories about this. They sound wonderful. Um, they're uh, not wonderful in the sense of, oh, how great, but, I mean, they're, if, if you like a macabre horror tale, if you like something interesting, you like a good Gothic novel, they're wonderful in that sense. Um, but, of course, now the stories then get even more embellished. By, uh, by the 1930s, for example, there's a Czech author who's putting out a series of true Gothic pulp fiction novels and and he too has heard this sort of snowballing embellishment of Countess Bathory and you know and at this point in history now he he really starts putting the icing on the cake and now she has an Iron Maiden uh, in her castle and she's she's torturing all these girls and uh, not only is she bathing in her blood but in their blood but she's having almost uh, revelry and parties and uh, you know She's sadistic, and, and she's certainly a vampire. Uh, probably the vampire stories, uh, they also got started around the 1700s, but they may have come from one of the trial transcripts in which Countess Bathory actually was uh, bothered by a servant when she was sick in bed, and, and she got up and she actually bit the girl. And, and that seemed to have morphed into this sort of vampire legend as well. So... Uh, as I say, by the time we get to today, uh, she's become the serial killer of over 600 victims. She's a lesbian. She's a vampire. She tortured and murdered all these people and bathed in their blood. And that was the point when my research really got going to start questioning, okay, how much of this is true and how much is is just fanciful? And, and that, that's really what my research set out to do was to go back to the original source material and find out, you know, what can we say for sure is real and what can we say and, you know, is, is fictional and, and where, in fact, did that fiction come from? So uh, if you'd like, I can kind of proceed to the next part where, I don't, would you like the big reveal now of, of what I found? or, or <laughs> Well, if you'd that? like, if you'd like, you can kind of tell the story in the form of, of how, you kind of discovered things, and then, you know, if you'd like to do it uh, in kind of a timeline like that, that would be kind of cool, or you can just do it in the timeline that that you kind of have in your own mind there. Sure, okay. Well, I think my my timeline came as I was actually translating the original documents, and as I was doing that, I was, I, I guess you might say, really coming to terms with not the person of, of legend, um, not the person of horror movies, but the real person who actually lived. And um, what I found interesting that, that maybe, uh, you know, some people don't really know about is that Countess Bathory was indeed a real person, but the real person uh, in many ways is so very different from the person that we've, we've come to know in our horror movies and our, in our, our books. Uh, the real person 
was married. She had children. She, by all accounts, was a very good mother. And her husband uh, was, in fact, a National War hero. Uh, during the time when the Countess lived, she, she was born in 1560 and died in 1614. Uh, the Ottoman Turks were sweeping through Europe and uh, raiding cities, burning villages. There was fighting all along uh, you know the the different borders throughout Europe, and and they were the Turks were constantly threatening Vienna, which was actually fairly <laughs> close uh, to where Countess Bathory lives and where a number of her and her husband's estates were located. And um, her husband worked. Uh, he he was a military man in addition to being a landed member of the gentry. He was a member of the parliament. Um, he he was uh, a count himself and. He, yet he was a military man, and that's what he loved doing. And he'd get on a horse, and he'd be gone for months at a time on these military campaigns. And um, he, he was also, he was very interesting. He's, he's in many ways a very generous man. Uh, he and his wife gave very generously to the Lutheran church. They gave uh, money to scholars. They were patrons of the arts. They had a printing press on one of their estates. Uh, they had hundreds uh, of acres. They they had a, dozens of estates that that take up what are today five different countries. And um, Countess Bathory's husband, Ferenc, loved um, his warfare. He loved raiding. He loved burning and pillaging just as much as his enemies did. He loved taking prisoners who he held for ransom. Um, and he really financed, in, in addition to the income that his estates brought in through, uh, you know, raising crops and animals and, and things like that, uh, he brought in a considerable amount of wealth to his family's uh, coffers by taking prisoners and holding them for ransom, very, very, like rich pashas, you know, not, not poor peasants, <laughs> and, uh, you know, raiding their towns and villages and carting off their treasuries, which he would bring home. Uh, and he and his troops would come back from a campaign and there might be, you know, 600 men that would show up and they'd camp out on the estates and, and this feasting would begin and he'd bring in these treasure troves of things that he'd gotten from the Ottoman territories. Um, and in fact, he and Countess Bathory, their wealth was so extensive uh, that the, the king and the emperor frequently borrowed money from them to finance these wars against the Turks. Um, it's kind of amazing, but when Ferenc died, he left uh, Ershabet, or Elizabeth in, in English, um, a widow with pretty young children. They were Her kids were in their early teens. Um, her son was about nine. Um, and, you know, there they are. She's widowed, and the money that she depended on, you know, from her husband and his exploits uh, suddenly wasn't there anymore. And so it was kind of funny because the king and the emperor had borrowed in today's money about uh, about $17 million that was still outstanding, uh, which they owed Countess Bathory. And so when her husband died, um, in many ways, she, she were not for, I will say, and I'll talk about it a little bit, there, there were some crimes definitely that went on, but were it not for that, I, I, I want to point out that I think she might have 
gone down in history in a very, very different way because in other ways she was extremely remarkable and she was very brave. She's now left alone as a widow with these young kids. She has dozens of estates um, and she's living in a time when everybody wants her land and her money. Um, Her relatives want it. The king wants it. She's Protestant during the Reformation. The, The Habsburgs who are uh, you know, in charge, the ruling aristocracy, they're Catholic. They want it. Um, the, the Turks want it. There's a rebellion, meanwhile, going on in, in her land. It, it's kind of chaos. And amidst all of this, she goes to the king's court and, and literally sues the crown, demanding, pay me back, you know, my $17 million that you owe me. My husband is gone. He served you well for years. Um, I'm a widow now, and, you know, I, I need the money. And it was kind of sad, but the the king refused to pay her back. He kept putting her off, blowing her up. Well, well, you know, I, I don't have the money, but later. And, you know, our history, history shows he, he absolutely did have the money. He just didn't want to pay her. Um, and so you'd think, well, she's got all this land. She's got all this property. She should be okay. Um, but actually, no, because uh, – Right after her husband died, there's a rebellion that's going on. Um, and we have the Turks raiding. Again, we've got a rebellion going on. And the warfare is ravaging her lands, including her crops. Her people are being killed. Her crops are being destroyed. Her cattle is being stolen. You know, and her towns are in flames. And it's really a horrible situation where she's now writing letters, railing, trying to get, you know, the people to to stand up and fight. She's moving from a state to a state now to get out of the way of the fighting. It's a very perilous time. And she's actually in dire straits financially, which I, I don't think it's a lot of uh, credit too much. There's another thing going on in the meantime where the king, if, if he convicts someone, if he can convict a wealthy noble of a crime, he would then, under the law at the time, be able to um, not only cancel any debts that might be owed to him, but he could also then confiscate up to a third of the property of of the of the accused. So there's also a hint of a conspiracy, which I, I kind of address in the research as well. Um, did the king, in fact, ponder the idea, if I can somehow frame this woman and accuse her of committing crimes, then I will not have to pay back the $17 million I owe her, and I can take up to a third of her property. Um, and, and this is not anything unusual. Uh, many of the Habsburg rulers at the time were routinely doing this, especially to um, over in, in uh, what's, what's today parts of Romania, but which then was Transylvania, They were routinely doing it to those people. They were doing it to the Protestants living in Austria. Uh, There were a handful. Most were Catholics, but uh, Protestants there, Protestants in Hungary, for example. And it was kind of routine to frame, you know, a wealthy person to to steal their land and, you know, cancel any debt. So I I want to throw out that, which I'll I'll address maybe, you know, as we go, if, if that conspiracy is true or not. I do get into it a little bit, but... Um, so in any case, we see Countess Bathory in this very dreadful situation. And what's fascinating is that her letters indicate a person who 
is remarkable in the face of this chaos. She's writing letters to neighboring nobles, asking them for advice, for their support. She's still on circuit, going to each of her estates, running them, taking care of repairs, dealing with uh, issues coming up. And, and all along, even though the king still owes her $17 billion, or, or million dollars, I'm sorry, she's still forced to pay taxes to him. And you know, you think he'd say, well, I can't pay you, but at least you don't have to pay taxes on your property. No, she was still paying taxes to him the whole time. Um, so it's a very complicated situation. She's doing these diplomatic uh, meetings. Meanwhile, the Pope is sending his, uh, his men through the region, and here she is. She's Protestant. She's absolutely terrified, and yet she's meeting with them, doing business deals with them, keeping the peace. Um, so, as I say, had nothing bad criminally gone on, you know, she might have gone down in history as an incredibly remarkable diplomat, leader, uh, you know, but it, it didn't quite go that way. And, and that's now where we get to, well, what, you know, I, I think I've now described two opposing views of this person. Uh, on the one hand, she's running these estates all by herself very capably, protecting her property for the sake of her children and their inheritances. And yet, on the other hand, wait a minute, there's all these vampire serial killer stories about her. Where, where is the in-between and where is the real person? And I think that's where then the research started to get very interesting. Um, I, I will tell folks out there listening, I, I know everybody is always interested to know about, well, you know, the diary that she kept. <laughs> the Countess allegedly kept this diary in which she, you know, not only reported on her goings-on, you know, running her estates, but also she also supposedly made reports about all the people that she had killed. And, in fact, uh, Raymond T. McNally's biography, which is for the most part very credible, even kind of engages in talking about this diary saying, you know, after the Countess had murdered one girl, she laconically remarked, oh, she was too small, something like that, you know. Um, and it's kind of funny because I, I did look for the diary, and I can assure everybody listening, um, no stone was left untouched. I went to uh, all of uh, the archives that have Bathory materials or materials of her family or her husband's family, and, and the archivists all uniformly told me, oh, my gosh, that diary. We're asked about this thing all the time. And we can assure you we don't have it. There's, to our knowledge, there's no such thing. But if we ever find it, we'll let you know. And sort of my, my commentary on that is um, where I think the stories about the diary got going is, is during the trial testimonies. There was a young servant girl new, named uh, Susanna who testified, and uh, we don't know her exact age, but it, it, it seems from all accounts that uh, she, she definitely was a minor. Uh, she worked in the Countess's service probably maybe a year or so and, and was called to testify. Um, she was the one who, when asked how many people were murdered, she was the one that gave us this famous uh, number of, of over 600, you know, 650 um, she was also the one that probably gave rise to the diary stories. Uh, she said that 
there was the countess kept a list and 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 the word is translated either as registry or log or journal entry more like um something almost something like a a a business document not a diary that we would understand today in which you're keeping personal secret thoughts um and she said oh yes and and one of the other uh male servants uh, saw it too and and it was it was kind of interesting because the judges who were listening to this testimony did not believe the girl at the time. It was kind of obvious that she was showboating a little bit. She was called up. She wanted to show off. She wanted to sound impressive. Um, she's the only one that gives such a high account. Every other person who testified to how many people were murdered give numbers closer to 50 60, which is not good, I, I, I admit immediately. The highest official number was the king who said 300, and even he seemed to be hedging a little bit. Uh, no, no one testified to anything more than 200. So when this little girl gets on the stand and says, oh, yes, there's over 600, even the judges at the time didn't believe her, um, particularly when she went on to name the male servants, uh, Jakob Zilvash was one of them, and said, oh, he knows all about it. When they questioned this particular gentleman, they, they didn't even bother to ask him about it because they knew it was ridiculous, it was specious, there was nothing to it. So, But it, it did give rise to the story of, oh, there, there is somewhere, though, there must be this diary. Um, another comment that I, I raise is, you know, when when we think of diaries or writing our secret thoughts or, or maybe, you know, there's somewhere out there this smoking gun where the countess confesses in writing why she did what she did and what was she thinking and how what was it like killing them and how many were there. Um, in In the frame of history, this is a very modern notion. Um, what I mean by that is, if we go back even just a, a little over a hundred years ago, when Freud is coming out with psychoanalysis and he's telling people to, you know, think, be be a little bit more introspective, think about yourself and what is your motive for behaviors and that sort of thing. Even even a little more than a hundred years ago, that kind of thinking um, was considered extremely self-indulgent. Um, and especially people in the upper classes thought of it as not only self-indulgent but but a bit ridiculous. It's not to say people weren't, you know, going for their therapy sessions back then. It was catching on. But if we go back 400 years ago, um, people were not psychoanalyzing themselves like we understand it today. Um, the picture of people in Europe, you know, in in 400 years ago is is a people who are extremely religious. They're thinking in terms of good or evil, and if they think, you know, what is a motive for doing something that's evil, they're not thinking modern-day psychiatry or they're not thinking about childhood traumas. They're not, they're not, they don't think the way we do. In those days, they're thinking uh, there's witchcraft involved, possibly. They're thinking... Uh, definitely, there's satanic forces involved, um, and, and that's what—that's how they see the world. That is their worldview. So, uh, the idea of Countess Bathory in her time in history, even 
psychoanalyzing her thoughts or, you know, introspectively writing them down or would not have happened. Um, the real Countess Bathory, in fact, when she wrote anything, uh, she had a very classically trained style. Uh, it was very almost legalistic. She wrote very in very clipped, very curt, very short sentences. She did not, how do I say, she, she was not a romanticist. She didn't, she didn't use flowery language. She, she wasn't overly gushingly affectionate in, in, in her letters. She, she was very all business. Uh, and in fact, her letters reveal a personality that was often um, curt or you might say a little imperious. Uh, so the notion of her, you know, after a hard day of murdering or, you know, reclining in her bloodbath with a glass of wine and then, you know, journaling in her diary of what the day's events is, is very much a modern-day contrivance. It, it was not, <laughs> not the way things went in those days. So when, um, you know, when we, when we think about her now in terms of, well, you know, well, what, what really did she do? What really happened? I, I think that's the, the, the key question in all of this, what, what really went on. Um, and, and that's where I think the, the trial transcripts, the depositions of witnesses, that becomes most instructive. Unfortunately, um, Countess Bathory herself wished to uh, testify at the trial proceedings. And ironically, history did not permit this. Uh, the, the prime minister, who was uh, also the kind of like the Supreme Court justice of the land, refused to allow her to testify. Um, her family was also uh, petitioning against that as well. She, the entire time, alleged, I'm innocent. I, I never killed anybody. I, I never did anything. You know, so, it, you know, so we, we've got that going on. And so even in her own words, though, uh, as a testimony, she was not permitted to say anything. So all, all we have is when she was arrested, um, they do find dead bodies in her castle. They absolutely do. They were probably tipped off because they knew exactly the raiding party who arrested her knew exactly where to go in her castle to, to find where the, the bodies were and, and, you know, some victims who were being held in, in, in a dungeon, basically. And um, they asked Countess Bathory, well, they brought her up to the castle and showed her. They're like, what do you mean? You, you don't know about this. What are you talking about? This is your castle. You had to know this is going on. And at that point, she basically said, well, my servants did this. I didn't do it. And, and it really kind of astounded the authorities who said to her, well, you know, what do you mean your servants did this? Well, you you had to have known they were doing it. Then why didn't you stop them? And her again, her response was even more astounding when she said, "Even I'm afraid of them." <laughs> and so, you know, that's a whole other story of who these servants are, which you know I could cover in a bit. But um, if we cut to the chase legally, then you know, well, how was Countess Bathory arrested, and what happened, and uh, just the quick legal overview? There, there were there were a number of servants in her employ who uh, were also arrested the night she was, and they very, very quickly testified against each other. Uh, they couldn't point fingers fast enough at each other of who did the killing and the maiming and the, the torturing and that sort of thing. Um, and by their accounts, 
anywhere between 50 and 60 girls were killed over a course of, of years. We're, we're really talking about maybe maybe a total of, of almost 10 years that this is going on. Um, and then the question was, well, what about Countess Bathory? Was she doing anything? And they, they, they were a little hesitant at first, but, but then pretty soon they started pointing a finger at her as well and saying, well, you know, we did much of the killing, but there were times when she either participated or, you know, somebody would be brought to her and she'd be in a bad mood and, and <laughs> somebody died when it was all over. Um, and that's kind of a portrait of um, the Countess's, I guess you might say, her her personality that we can reflect on today. And I'll, I'll say immediately, I'm, I'm not a forensic psychiatrist. Um, I have spoken to people who are, though, about this case, and I, I have a little insight. But one thing I've noticed, at least from the original transcripts, Kellis Bathory, as I mentioned, had been under enormous pressure to try to preserve her estates and her wealth for her children. And again, she's got wars going on around her. She's got very, very political, very cutthroat um, adversaries and enemies, uh, not only uh, in amongst the nobility, also sort of, uh, you might say, family members that were trying to steal her land and her, her property as well. So she's dealing with all this. And she's also, as I, as I mentioned, having to do these very delicate, complex negotiations, very high-level kind of thing she's doing. And she handles it brilliantly while she's doing it. She goes to the king's court. She goes to the king's coronation. She goes to high society weddings, parties. She sends ambassadors to parliament for her. She's, you know, negotiating with diplomats. She's doing all these things, and she handles it brilliantly. But then what happens, it's, it's as if the strain or the stress of it become overwhelming for her. And when she's finally alone, um, the littlest thing sets her off. And that's when we hear the witnesses telling these stories that something completely, you know, trivial. One of her young servant girls doesn't do the sewing or the darning correctly, doesn't iron her dress properly, uh, something like that she goes into an absolute fit of rage and will grab anything handy. There's, there's a witness account where there's, uh, she grabs a cudgel. And for modern readers, just think of the leg of a very heavy chair. It's almost like a baseball bat that she grabs and she beats this girl to a bloody pulp. And, and that's really what the testimony says. You, you can't even recognize this child when she's done. And then, you know, just as quickly as this rage comes over her, it's like she's spent. And then she feels better and she, it's like she, it's forgotten. And then she moves on and then, you know, an hour later she writes a letter to somebody saying, oh, we need to make some repairs on the roof or something like that or call in the masons. We have to you know, fix the brickwork or something like that. It's, it's as if she can separate herself from what happens. Um, it, it's a very interesting story. I, I, I think I'm going to pause now in case you, you know, and if you want to direct my, you know, questions in some other way, I'd be happy to go any way you want, but I just want to shut up now and 
you know, <laughs> no, that's no, what it's, about. <laughs> I was highly entertained during that entire conversation, and things were running through my head, one of which was, uh, you know, obviously you're not a forensic psychologist, and that's fine, but, you know, everybody knows kind of the background of quote-unquote serial killers because, God, they're they're still struggling to classify what a serial killer is. But yeah, um, yeah. were there any tells with her? I mean, anything in the child? And, again, we're going off of things hundreds of years ago. So if, right. if you don't know, you don't know, or you can't find it, you, you can't find it. But was were yeah. there any tells, any signs in childhood or earlier in life? Or was this mm-hmm. just one of those things where, I mean, she snapped? Right, right. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this very clearly. I'm I'm offering speculation right now, but mm-hmm. it, it is based on a few things we have. I wish I could tell you we have a smoking gun that can immediately point to it and say, Oh, well, when she was ten she was abused, when she was this, that, the other. We don't have that and, and there's a reason for that. She she's growing up in a very high noble family. If there's anything bad going on, it's not going to get out and nobody's going to talk about it. That's the first thing we're dealing with. But we have clues. Um, we have, we do have some clues. We, we do know that she, we know a little bit about her personality, not only from what we can glean from her letters that she writes, but also what her contemporaries say. And we, we do know that as a child, she's, she's very strong-willed, She's very intelligent. She's very beautiful. She's she she's everything. She's the whole package as as even as a child. But she's also being raised to be a very high noble aristocrat with all kinds of responsibilities. And there does indeed seem to be a shift that when um, she's she spends her her earliest years growing up at her parents' estate. It's in the country. We know her parents in many ways. They're, they're kind of old-fashioned. And when I say old-fashioned in the olden days, the, the Renaissance is starting then. We're, you know, we, we've, got, we, we've got a breath of, you know, there's, there's new thought and, and movements in, in music, art, literature, the sciences. And yet her family, uh, you know, they're kind of still living as if it's the Middle Ages. They they have their long family tradition and their history. They still run their lands with an iron fist the way they had always done. It, it's kind of almost like the Enlightenment never really completely reached the Bathory clan. And they knew about it, but that's okay. They didn't want to go there. They wanted to keep things the way they'd always done it. Yet when Countess Bathory becomes engaged, and she gets engaged um, kind of at the end of her 10th, going into her 11th year, um, to her fiancé, who would be the future parents that she'd marry. Uh, she goes off to live. She leaves her family estate and goes to live uh, at his family home. And this is very customary of the time where, uh, you know, the, the young girl who's engaged goes to live with her future in-laws because she's, uh, you know, moving, going to be, you know, taking over her husband's property and his estates and managing them in large part. And she has to learn at this time the ways of becoming a proper noble woman. And, and that, that's not just learning some courtly dances or, you know, learning how to curtsy. Or 
it really involves a huge set of skills, uh, largely focusing on estate management. Um, if the husband is away, which they frequently were, it would fall on the wife to manage the estate. And the combined wealth of her husband and her husband's estates, as well as her own, the dowry that she was bringing with her, made her and her husband one of the wealthiest couples in Europe at the time. Uh, we also know, as I mentioned, her husband, uh, since his youth, was training to be a soldier. That He didn't have to be a soldier. He, he could have enjoyed just living on his lands comfortably, but he loved the military, and, and it was very clear that he was never going to be home, and she would be responsible for running everything. And um, Ferenc's father had already passed away. His mother was ill. Uh, by the time they were engaged, she died not very long after. And short of relatives, you know, Countess Bathory's parents, uh, you know, around roughly around this time, uh, certainly by the time she had married, were both gone. We're talking about a very young girl who everybody realized from the get-go would, would have to be in charge of, of huge estates. It's kind of like being a CEO of a giant corporation. So there was no fooling around. This this strong-willed girl is suddenly, you know, being trained and tutored to run a state. Uh, she's being trained and tutored to be very, actually quite scholarly. She had a number of magnificent tutors when she arrived at her husband's court. Um, they weren't fooling around with her. And one could say that they were very, very strict with her. This this strong-willed country girl coming to them wasn't going to behave like that anymore. So um, we we can very, very easily speculate that her training was extremely strict, and and that that's not anything unusual for the time. Um, if I had to go further, though, I'm going to say right off the bat, I have no proof of this whatsoever. I have only conversations with forensic psychiatrists who I've talked with, but many of them point out that Countess Bathory's victims were, by and large, young girls, typically between the ages of 10 to 14 years old. She didn't go after men. She didn't generally go after adult women. She, she didn't go after little boys. She went after little girls. And we're talking that age of 10 to 14, which are in particular the years when she first arrived at her husband's estate. From the time she became engaged to the time she got married when she was about 15 years old. And it's Everybody I've talked to, again, we have no proof, but professionally, these folks who practice in this area have all strongly felt that um, she, she was absolutely abused, molested, probably sexually, uh, by a number of factors. If I were to speculate who, how, what, um, uh, it, <laughs> I, I could easily speculate. Um, her, her husband, for example, and this again, no proof, but just for example, uh, was in, was was uh, you know he had a lot of friends, a lot of soldier army buddies, a lot of friends that he hung out with. He was not known to be much of a scholar. He was known to be an athlete. He was known to be a soldier, and he had a very violent streak in him. 
Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, during this time he and his friends had their way with her routinely. Um, women were seen still, in, in a sense, as property. Um, if a husband wanted to pass his wife along to his friends for an evening's entertainment, eh, eh, it was, you know, as long as it was clandestine and behind closed doors, it, it could happen. Um, there may have been uh, relatives of hers. The, the Bathory family is shrouded in their own myths and legends of all sorts of uh, stories, true or not, I, I can't say, but of, of mental illness and strange goings on, and she might very well have been molested by a brother, by an uncle. You know, but, but most everybody agrees that there was likely in her history some sort of molestation, some sort of terrible trauma and violence leveled against her. This coupled with a couple other things. Uh, the Bathory family, for example, uh, ruled, as I say, their, their lands with an iron fist. They uh, meted out justice to their servants as they pleased. Servants were also definitely considered property. Um, the, the, the peasant nobility uh, had very few rights at the time, um, and, and the nobility over them without need for any kind of a technical trial or, or government intervention could do just about anything they wanted to the peasant classes. So, so we have, it, it, it kind of creates a perfect storm. Countess Bathory grows up living in a time in a world where her family and she herself has the power over life and death over everyone who works for her, basically, everybody of the peasant class. And couple that if she suffered terrible trauma herself, that would make her snap with these violent rages and particularly focus her rage on young girls who perhaps were the same age that she was when she went through all of her terrible victimization. It, it kind of makes sense <laughs> in the scheme of it why she was then focused so mightily on a particular you might say, demographic of victim. Um, but again, the, the interesting thing is she didn't kill all of them. Uh, as I say, she hired in her, uh, in her service uh, a number of, of adult servants who were also, the, the, the witness testimonies are extremely clear about this, very sadistic women. She had three women in her employ who were terribly sadistic. And you know, according to testimony, taught her how to discipline, and, and that's, that's what I want to comment on. In, in those days, when we're talking about the torturing and the beating that's going on of these young servant girls, it's all being done in the name of running the household efficiently, meeting out proper discipline as is demanded. And Countess Bathory many times left the disciplining to her female staff. Uh, who were head of her army of uh, young girls who were seamstresses. They worked in the laundry. They worked in the kitchen. And Countess Bathory put these extremely sadistic women in charge of these girls. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times she turned a blind eye to what was going on. And sometimes just when she became involved and, you know, these these what you you know these these head honchos in charge of her her female staff would you know bring an offender to her 
I think at that point she was probably exhausted from the day. I think they seemed to pick times when she was very vulnerable after uh, she had to do something very tense, very diplomatic, requiring a lot of her attention, her focus. And as I, as I say, she was usually very weakened after these encounters, and that's when they would choose to, you know, bring, oh, look, this terrible girl just, you know, tore your you know, $6,000 down, you know, what are you going to do about it? And, you know, of course, it would set the countess off on a rage and she'd go ballistic. And <laughs> so it really is kind of this perfect storm of, of activity that went on, you might say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, okay, so we've got everybody on the edge of their seat. And so the, the second question I have to ask, and probably the one that everybody is is like, why won't they get to this? Why won't they get to this? Well, I had to keep everybody around this long, right? So <laughs> I, I, I want to <laughs> no, you actually kept everybody around with a hell of a yes, discussion sorry, here. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, the, uh, all right, so I'm going to try to be careful how I phrase this. but. Sure. It's obvious, no matter what the story, she had some sort of a bloodlust, whether she just liked to kill, whether she just liked, she liked fly off the handle, whatever it was, she had some sort of a bloodlust. So uh-huh. can you separate myth from, you know, what you possibly do know as far as her uh-huh. and, you know, the, uh, I guess, the stories of her and blood? Yes. What did So what did she really do based on the evidence that we have. Okay, here I go. And there's, there's, I, I think, I think the folks listening, you know, if, if you're waiting for the good stuff, or if, <laughs> forgive me for saying it that way, but you folks know what I mean, I think, I, I'll try to deliver to you. Okay, well, the first thing, um, the witnesses started talking about hearing screaming and crying coming from behind walls. Uh, they, one of her servants, for example, would walk the castle uh, on a patrol or, or just in, you know, checking things out, maintenance routine, and talked about hearing screaming, sobbing, crying. Other witnesses, mostly also people who work the estate, said the same thing. One testified there was actually a secret room um, in one of the castles that only the countess and her husband were, you know, allowed to go in and there was actually a guard at the door. And again, people, you know, reported saying, you know, we hear screaming and crying, but we're never seeing anything. And the early days when, when Ferenc, the husband, was still alive, um, there were, these rumors got started that people were hearing screams and cries, but nobody ever saw anything. Um, and I will say that the Countess was absolutely meticulous of cleaning up after herself, especially in the early days. Uh, many of the torture, torturings and killings were taking place in uh, kitchens, laundry rooms, places where the blood could be cleaned up. This is someone who did not want everybody to know about what was going on when she was doing her disciplining. Um, one of her servants... Anna supposedly taught her how to torture. And Countess Bathory and her husband, when he would come home, he also taught her all kinds of methods how to torture and kill. He would, for example, bring Turkish prisoners along with them and teach his wife how, how to hurt them, how to kill them. And um, he supposedly, I do not have a source to prove this, but one of the legends do say he even brought her a 
steel finger set of claws that she could, like a, a steel glove of claws, kind of like, um, um, oh, I'm sorry, Wolverine, you know, <laughs> when he has those hands that come out. It's, it's like a, a piece that she could put on her hand that she would use to stab and claw. Um, there are There is a real witness account that she and her husband uh, tortured a servant girl who, uh, you know, stole something. And and they they doused the girl in honey, and it was the summertime, made her stand outside in the heat all day, uh, took all her clothes off, covered her, smeared her in honey, and made her stand outside uh, in, the, in the blazing sun while all the flies and the ants and the, the bugs were just attacking her all day. Uh, when she finally passed out from being attacked by, you know, these biting insects and, and the sun and getting pretty much heat stroke, uh, she was revived when they, you know, put pieces of uh, paper between her toes and lit them on fire uh, to bring her back. Uh, the stories about Countess Bathory and her particular forms of discipline are also uh, testified by servants who saw it and witnessed it. Uh, some of her methods were particularly heinous. In fact, when I was translating them, I had to double and triple check the sources to make sure it really and truly said this. Uh, when she was disciplining somebody and she was in one of her rages, uh, it might be quick. She might, as I mentioned, just beat the living crap out of them until they were a bloody pulp. Uh, but other times um, she, when she wasn't in a rage and she was more controlled and mannered about it, that's when it got very scary. Because that, that's when she, she absolutely had a very sadistic side to her. Um, there are stories, for example, she started out pretty simple, almost kind of like childish types of torturing, where she would be sitting in a carriage with her maid, and they would annoy her. And so she would take a, a knitting needle or pins and start sticking them in the fingers or sticking them you know, under the, the fingernails. Um, and then it started to progress. Then there was another story as it started to progress that there was a young lady who had gotten some, um, uh, some food to take along in the carriage. And they were these, um, oh gosh, these sort of, uh, uh, like it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a, uh, a potato type of food that was that they got from a vendor before they set out on their trip and, and, and they were very, very hot, these these like potato cakes. And the servant girl started eating them and Countess Bathory got into the carriage and, and and basically said, Well, you're eating all these in front of me and you didn't give me any, you're not gonna save one for me and you know, and, and, and they're still too hot to eat and, and in a rage Countess Bathory took one and shoved it into the girl's mouth. Um, <laughs> you know, she, she, you know, get these kind of rages like that. It was still kind of simple, not, not too, I mean, it was kind of bad, but not horrible. But as time progressed, as the years wore on, the torturing that is recounted gets more and more brutal till we start to get what I might call maybe her golden years of, of torturing, where now we're talking about, uh, instances where, uh, a you know, a pair of pliers is taken to somebody and, and pieces of flesh are, are gouged out of the person. And then as sort of this coup de grace, 
the chunks or the hunks of flesh that are torn out of the person are then cooked into a stew and served to people, not only to the victim themselves who is forced to eat this, uh, but then this stew is served to unknowing people who might have been on the countess's bad list, you know, for annoying her for whatever reason. Uh, she also uh, made some poisonous cakes to serve to her enemies when they came to uh, dinner one time, hoping that it would, um, well, it's kind of a magic spell gone wrong. She, <laughs> she kind of hoped to kill them with it. They didn't die. They just got stomach aches. But at that point, were really, you know, she was on their radar. Um, there are also other horrific stories of um, really horrific where, uh, she would take um, uh, a poker that, you know, this, this kind of long metal rod or pole that you, you, you put into a fireplace to, you know, move the logs around. Uh, she would put this metal poker into the, the fire and heat it up. I mean, we're, we're talking mostly like, like a branding iron. And not only she would, you know, burn people uh, with it, her victims with it, uh, there are accounts as well that she would... Um, shove it up unmentionable places. Now, there is a counter story to that. And, and when I say unmentionable places, for her female victims, you know, that she would, you know, put it into their vaginas usually. There is a counter story. Some people say that in those days, um, that was actually a, a form of how abortions were given. And, you know, medical practice in those days, we're, we're talking about leeches and, you know, giving people mercury drinks and, and cutting them. So uh, it, it's not all that surprising that an abortion might take place, you know, using a hot poker put into an unmentionable place. But so some will argue, well, no, no, she was just trying to give this girl an abortion. You know, she wasn't torturing her. You know, whatever it may be, it's still a heinous thing that was going on. Uh, there's stories of a young girl that escaped from her castle with a knife still in her foot. Uh, there are stories recounted that when she took her handmaids with her on trips, uh, there was a bag that was brought along that had all kinds of uh, basically handcuffs, locks, chains, and keys that at night the girls would all be chained up so that they couldn't escape. Um, townspeople reported repeatedly seeing her maids coming into town black and blue, their hands bandaged so bad they couldn't even hold the railing to step down from carriages, um, burned, you know, as, as, as time went on, she, you might say, was getting a little bit more floppy. Um, there, there are also accounts from people in town and from witnesses that when one of her uh, servant girls tried to actually escape out of her coach during a trip they were taking, um, uh, Countess Bathory as a punishment took the girl, uh, it was in December, uh, into uh, you know the, an area where there was a lake and the lake was just starting to freeze over and she forced the girl into this freezing water and made her stay in it for a long period of time. Uh, the girl eventually died and there's also stories too that in a rage she uh, would have girls starved uh, she would have them taken outside in, in the dead of winter in a snowy night, uh, all their clothes stripped off, and then have, you know, water just doused on them until they kind of froze in place. Um, these, these stories are all recounted by 
witnesses. Uh, this, these are legends. So I, I sometimes I, I often think that the real stories are, are more heinous than, than any of the, the myths ever really got. The myths, you know, have that sort of fanciful quality to them. But the, the real stories, that, I mean, it kind of makes Hannibal Lecter look like an amateur. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cases, you know? so, Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think Dennis, I think Dennis may have popped in. I, I just want to make sure that I've got him here. Dennis, is that you, bud? I think it might be. Yes. How are you, sir? I'm very good. I'm just listening to the last little bits of uh, of this at the moment, and uh, you know, it's always very exciting to hear the the various ways in which uh, uh, the story gets told, retold, researched, and factualized over the years. Yeah, now, the, the fact that Dennis is on here, Kim, does not mean that, that I want you to go anywhere, however, unless you have commitments otherwise. So, you know, I figured that we could kind of, you two could ha- kind of have a discussion of what's going on. Basically, Dennis, and I know you caught the tail end, I, I, uh, I, I've kind of let Kim tell the story of what she's uncovered, and then at the end, of course, I, I had to, you know, go for the, the climax, what everybody's looking for, is how does blood come into play, that type of thing. But, you know, now now I figure it's a good time for, you know, kind of you all to have a discussion. And, and I think you two probably know each other on some level, am I correct? Oh, yes, we do. Uh, Dennis, it's a pleasure to, to be with you. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. It's a pleasure. To, you know, I don't think we've ever heard each other's voices, have we? No, we, we've just written to each other, um, but no, we haven't, so it's, it's great to hear the real you. <laughs> <laughs> you as well. Yeah, we've been, we've been in contact over the years. My initial <clears throat> contact came, I think, when your first book came out, and I was still sketching the opera. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh-huh. And and you were kind enough to to write a review of it and um, you know share it with your readers and and uh, you know then we we started working together on on your airship at opera and you know and 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 you got that produced and that was so exciting. Back in the early days, there were only a few sources of information on on the, the countess and. Uh, uh, for some reason, just because my site was early, going back to 1996, uh, people started sending me stuff to post. And so gradually I built up this kind of archive of images and stories and and who knows what. It's kind of a, a big uh, uh, rat's nest of uh, information and misinformation. And, and gradually I focused it on, on what I was interested in, which is how to, in an hour or so, uh, tell this entire story, which seems impossible to do, but that's what uh-huh. I was attempting to do in this opera, tell the story, and, and also to kind of uh, uh, look at, at, at the, the, both the mythology and the possible uh, uh, psychology here, as well as the politics and religion and all of those things, and try to, to come up with a different profile, and in some ways, by the end of the opera, an almost, almost sympathetic moment, almost sympathetic moment. <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought your opera was was just brilliant. Uh, you, you did a great job at, at, at encapsulating all of those things. And, and uh, if anybody was, you know, able to to catch the performance, uh, your videos are out there. Thank goodness. And yeah. uh, just uh, Lisa just did a wonderful job of, of, you know, such a wide range of emotions. And if if anybody doesn't know, um, uh, Dennis also even had a, a period instruments and. 
uh, it was just an amazing piece of music that, that really did run the gamut of, of everything, all in a compressed in such in, in an amazing amount of time. It was just brilliant. Part of the compression, of course, was economics, <laughs> because oh, yes. the, origi- the original opera was sketched out as a grand opera in three acts and 15 scenes, uh, you know, with all the characters that appear in, in, the, uh, in the story of the Countess. But of course, you know, producing a grand opera, uh, even at uh, you know out here in the sticks in Vermont where I live, is still a half million dollar project. project. And so uh-huh. I, you know, so I scaled it down at first to one that was a chamber opera with a few characters, and eventually ended up with a monodrama where effectively Ergebet tells her own story uh, in the course of uh, an hour and ten minutes. I worked mm-hmm. with Lisa Diablo, who was the lead singer for this for about 12 years, I think. Uh, and uh, she was very interested in playing this role. It was one of, one of the few uh, stories that she was absolutely committed to playing, so she kept prodding me to finish the opera for her. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. Um, you know, sometimes some, some of the fans have asked, uh, um, you know, I, I think people have a vision of the Countess, of being you know, 20-something and beautiful and um, this, you know, this ingenue and, and she's also this femme fatale. And I, I hope this doesn't sound wrong, gentlemen, but I, I, some of the myths and legends, because I think many of them have, have been written by men, I, I often think that in some ways Countess Bathory is the, the, the perfect male fantasy. She's, she's beautiful, she's deadly, she's charming, she's sexy, she's a bad girl but she can also be the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect diplomat. Um, and, and I know some of the fans uh, had wondered about, you know, why, why did you not cast the Countess as, again, if I can say it, forgive me, this, this sort of male fantasy, this, this hot babe, you know, that's pure evil but delicious, you know. And, and I personally was, I was really glad you you cast not not the young countess, but the the mature countess, the one who's able to look back and reflect on a life um, and have some insight or you know that kind of introspective remorse, anguish, yet filled still with the fiery passion of I come from a distinguished family and I yeah. never did anything wrong. How dare you? You know, <laughs> I, I think exactly. the casting was perfect. A lifetime of justification, and I think, of course, that the mature countess is the interesting countess, because the young one is is simply uh, not simply, but certainly influenced by uh, her, her the circumstances, her uh, incredibly brutal father, and everything that she's. So you know, there's not a lot interesting in a in a kind of a uh, you know a twenty-something uh, uh, person who's just beginning to explore these things. Of course, I cover it in flashbacks in the opera, but still, the most interesting countess to me is the one in her last years, the one who, who has engaged in politics for her whole life, who has, who has succeeded in, in, uh, in treaties and who's, you know, who knows languages and, and has uh-huh. raised children. These are the interesting things, you know, that, that uh, you know, I don't want to come in on a countess who, who, is, uh, who looks like something out of one of the video games. That doesn't interest me because right. I mean, what's, 
what's the point? <laughs> you know, uh, that's right. not the interesting character. The interesting character is the one who's who's grown. And of course, Lisa, it, it was basically the Countess's age, a little uh-huh. younger, but but you know, was the mature yeah. singer and the mature Countess. And, right. and and so I was able, I think, in in working with Lisa and working with, and, and of course, whoa, I mean, when 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 she takes on the character, she does not for the duration of those three performances, including the daytimes, she remained in character. Mm-hmm. An astounding wow. experience because you know I I'd go up to her and we talk about a scene and she'd look at me like I was a peasant, you know, because she was remaining <laughs> in the character uh-huh. of the countess. She was right. marvelous, marvelously intimidating. With the wow. Whole thing. She, yeah. yeah. And, she and so, really so, yeah, so we, she was able to reflect back, to look back on uh, at that age on her life, and to, of course, have undergone this period of several decades of not only, as you described, you know, increasing her, her brutality, but also increasing her self-justification increasing her knowledge of the world and of course living through a renaissance in eastern europe where she was able to 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 bring people to her table i mean she for goodness sakes the the the, the king owed her money i mean she was no small she was no just because she's the countess she might as well have been the empress of that whole area mm-hmm. she had everything you know so mm-hmm. that was that to me was exciting mm-hmm. yeah it really is you know Speaking of the mature countess, uh, a lot of questions I get are what do we think went on in the countess's mind or what did she do in her last years in captivity? You know, Travis, that's something that I I didn't mention. I think most of our, you know, readers of the countess's story or or listeners or or people who uh, love Dennis's opera are all aware of, of what happened to the countess at the end where, you know, she's arrested and she's, walled alive in the tower of her castle. And, you know, sometimes I'll have people ask me, what does that mean, she was walled alive? You know, it's like it means exactly that. They, you know, they, they put her in this, you know, this, this space and they, you know, they pretty much enclose her. They break up the doors and the windows and, you know, the story goes only leave this little slit for food. And then she she lives in this state for, for a couple of years, you know, about three mm-hmm. years before she, she dies. And, you know, I, I, I often get the question of, you know, I, I wonder, Dennis, if, if you'd like to speculate on this as well. You know, what what went through her mind? What? How did she occupy her time during these years of being really cut off from humanity when she was such a socialite? She was involved in so many things, and she's now realized all of her land that she's worked so hard to protect is being run by her sons-in-law. They're They're they've commandeered everything they've taken it over she can't do anything <laughs> take it not only that but depending on how one takes the testimony of the that was given against her uh, a lot of it most likely obtained under torture was uh was invented however brutal she may have been a lot of the, the testimony could could well have been uh, invented and so she had to deal with loss of her land loss of respect uh didn't lose her title uh, and she was let to live, but uh, she was also living for three years with the knowledge that she had been betrayed by those whom she trusted, however uh-huh. horrible mm-hmm. it was that she trusted them uh, w- w- with. Um, 
and that uh, all of these losses took place and the loss of her children, not only the, the ones that died, one or more that died in infancy or, or very young, but those that uh, left and those that, of course, betrayed her. And, and that combination, I mean, makes one, I, I would think, crazy. But, but, of course, during this time, she also wrote her will, didn't she uh, write her will? Yeah. She, you know, she, she penned the will uh, very shortly before the arrest um, in September, and then she was actually arrested in December. So she had the framework of it down where it was a very clever legal move. What she did, she put all of her property uh, essentially in trust for her children. Uh, listeners may recall how I mentioned, uh, how, as Dennis had said as well, how much money the king owed her. And as I'd mentioned, if uh, he could convict her of a crime, not only would the debt be canceled to him, uh, you know, that he he was owed, he wouldn't have to pay her back, but he could also confiscate potentially up to a third of her property. And she was likely well aware of this. When she sensed the end coming and the walls closing in on her, she was writing a will. And the will, very clever piece of legal work, where she put all of her property in trust uh, for her children, basically divesting herself of ownership so that the king couldn't touch it because her argument would then be, I, I don't own it anymore. It's in trust for my kids. I, I Don't look at me. She really only kept a life estate in her um, castle at Chaktitse, and that she actually did own outright. She had uh, her – she was given to her as a wedding gift, and yeah. there was still – uh, you, know, you might want to call it a mortgage owned on it to the crown, and she had paid that off. So no one could take that from her no matter what. So uh, very clever what she did. And then um, when she was in captivity, uh, what she started to realize is she had, you know, wanted very specifically that her three remaining children divide the property equally, only to find out her two adult daughters, uh, their husbands, were basically commandeering everything and, and fighting over it and causing trouble. And so she was upset that her daughters weren't really getting their share. It was being hoarded by their husbands and their families. And that's when in captivity, just actually uh, just days before she died, she requested that the um, uh, the local uh, priests come. Uh, in those days, uh, the clergy handled matters of chancellery, which included wills and estates and property, uh, to come and uh, help her. She wanted to write an addendum to the will in which she specified in writing that her one son-in-law was not to get any more property, and she yep. intended certain towns to go to her daughter, and, you know, uh, she couldn't be any more clear about that. Um, so that definitely was on her mind, and it's kind of interesting how she passed away shortly after that, it, almost as if she felt like, all right, I, I've done all I can now, I'm finished, that's it. It's kind, kind of a sad postal script to that, though. We find out that um, there's some very new research that's just come out within uh, the past year, actually, about her son, Paul. And, yeah. um, you know, kind of tragic about how she had worked so hard to preserve this wealth for her family, for her children, and we find out the share that he got, which was enormous. Um, not only did he give a lot of it away to the very 
uh, the very sons-in-laws that the countess didn't want to get any more. Uh, he was giving his stuff away to them, likely because he was pressured. He was, uh, uh, you know, he was a boy. He was, he was about 14 years old when this was going on. Uh, the rest of the, the inheritance that he keeps, we find out uh, that he was a terrible spendthrift. He was blowing it on hunting trips and artwork and lavish parties and didn't know how to handle it. He left all the finances in the hands of, of servants. Or who, <laughs> And I think his mother might have rolled over in his, her grave had she found out how he wasted everything that she spent a lifetime trying to preserve for him. And her exactly. daughters also died, you know, relatively young too. So a very tragic ending all the way around. I tried, you know, in writing the opera, I tried to simplify this. You know, part of part of writing any kind of short uh, fiction, uh, and admittedly, although this is fact-based, it is, I have to fictionalize a lot of it in order to in order to compress the story into a short period of time. So I use the symbolic uh, the symbolic uh, childhood experience of of the the thief that is sewn into the horse. Uh, oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that becomes a, a highly symbolic uh, action for her. Influencing her, so in the opening flashback to that period of time, not only, not only does she she talk about it indirectly, but the horse and riding the horse and riding the horses with her her friend Anna constantly becomes a refrain of her life uh, as yeah. as, the, as the horse haunts her uh, and also becomes a driving not to push the pun too far, but a driving force behind uh, many of her actions because she is, she is reenacting the torture that was meted out that then uh, to all her future uh, victims. And as, and as we move forward, you know, she, she, the, the, the stuck pin incident uh, as she's being dressed, again, I take that um, as her discovery, her conscious discovery of, of the rage or madness, um, and then you know from there the symbolism of 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 uh, having to confront multiple religions at once because uh-huh. there, was, there was a turmoil of of paganism and Christianity and 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 Islam all sort of mixed together in the, along with the wars and the people that passed through her court, and so uh-huh. I try to. To symbolize, to take that symbolism by uh, do, doing the retranslation of the of the supposed prayer of Erzabet, uh, right. and, and so she is praying not only to the Trinity but to the God of uh, the God Allah and to the Lord of Cats. So right. there becomes this prayer to everyone uh, to help her as she sees things fall apart. I use Sturzo uh-huh. as the bad guy throughout this. Because uh, I, I, because it's a monodrama, the character of Turzo never appears except as a vision, and so uh, there's the symbolism of that. And finally, in her downfall and her, uh, and arrest um, and her imprisonment, she then reflects 
extensively in the epilogue on her life. And again, it's a it's a kind of a precis because she's constantly saying, "Where are my children? Where are my children?" And then she goes back to her to her stiff-backed "I'm a bathory. You know, I am mm-hmm. important. I am yeah. the ruler. So in these tiny vignettes, each one is only the opera is divided into into uh, you know uh, I think eight scenes altogether in three acts, and each of these is kind of a a small. Uh, uh, symbolic gem of of what happened in her life and so we Uh so my own search my own quest in writing this was to say what was it that made her uh so likely to be cast as evil for behaving often in the way many of the nobility behave, maybe a little bit more extreme, but still uh, the idea of torture and uh, of servants was common, relatively commonplace. Uh, they were uh, of no value, and particularly in her case, they were of different, different ethnic background, and so that made them all the more disposable. Even today, if you, if, you, if, you, if you listen to the words of the Hungarian national anthem, it really talks about them as a chosen people. Uh, and it's a really unusual kind of a, uh, of a, of a, of a presentation. There, if you go on YouTube and look for the Hungarian National Anthem, you see this very, very white, uh, massive group of people singing this anthem of their, of their, their nobility and, 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 and uh, sort of sense of, of uniqueness in, in the human race. It's, a, it's a, uh-huh. almost a frightening in some time. So you understand that if this is the thread that holds together uh, the, the sort of the Hungarian nation, including its major representatives like Elizabeth Bathory, then, then there's a sense that these servants were disposable and the cruelty could be even more extreme, combined, of course, with the rebellion that her father had put down. So, wow. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, that's, that's so great that you mentioned that. I was thinking about from a legal standpoint, and it's something that I hadn't thought to mention earlier, this idea that um, I had talked to Dennis the same thing about how, you know, killing servants was not anything unusual, how they were indeed property at the time, and also kind of commenting on the Bathory history of ruling with an iron fist and the old kind of medieval style of of justice. Um, But I, I wanted to point out to the listeners that, um, Countess Bathory might have gotten away with everything had she only continued killing peasant girls. Where everything changed is when the murder of noble girls started happening. And that's, that was not something sanctioned. I, I mentioned before that nobility could kill their, their peasant servants almost pretty much with impunity. They, they could do whatever they wanted. But you, you couldn't kill a fellow noble <laughs> with impunity anymore. And when Countess Bathory started, uh, you know, the, as, as the uh, testimony was going, when the, the, um, the noble girls who had come to her household to study with her, um, she had opened a kind of finishing school to train noble girls in the fine arts of, uh, you know, estate management and the courtly ways and so on, when they started uh, disappearing and dying or the rumors started up with, wait a minute now, the same thing's happening, we're seeing them appear in town, uh, scratched, bloody, beaten, and so on, 
that's when the inquest officially began. And, and when you think of it in, his, in the terms of history, uh, disappearances or rumors of, of deaths of, of servants had been going on for almost a decade prior, but no one seemed to, to care very much. But the minute noble girls started disappearing or dying, that's when we see the government authorities now taking action. Yes, so, exactly. Really, really. And, and I, I crystallized that in one scene in my opera as well, because I moved an event that supposedly had taken place in Vienna, which is her bringing of Ilona Harsi to, the, uh, to, the, to her house on Augustinienstrasse um, to sing for her after having sung in the church service. And the story goes that she was so intimidated by the countess that she couldn't sing, and so the countess beat her and eventually killed her. And so I, I bring that scene from Vienna into the castle instead, because I try to keep the, the location the same, and then use that as, as the turning point of, of, as you say, of, of them not being able to, uh, to uh, uh, demean in any way the fellow nobility. And because she was a minor noblewoman, a singer, but a minor noblewoman, this becomes the turning point in the ability to arrest her. So, the, 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 and, and, you know, there are a couple, for the musical people uh, with little uh, interest here, I, I use a phrase um, where she asks her to sing. She says, sing to me, sing to me, to me sing. And she, sing, she says that over and over to Ilona. And... Uh, that little phrase is a, is a set of words that was also used by Luciano Berrio in his Sequenza for Solo Voice, where at one point the, the singer says, sing to me, sing to me, to me, sing, sing to me, sing to me, sing to me, sing. Now, mm-hmm. in Berrio's piece, the words are not meant to have any meaning. It's, it's specifically set out so that the words lose their meaning, whereas I turn the tables on that, and I imbue incredible meaning to that, that they won't sing to her, then her children can't sing to her, then the world no longer sings to her. And, and so as she, as she ages, suddenly everything changes, and then the moment of, of Ilona's death becomes, becomes the end of her, uh, her uh, reign. Now, in that, let me add one more little thing to that. <laughs> At one point, just before that, she sings about how the Bathory family will triumph throughout history. And what I, what I, at that point, she sings the melody of the Hungarian national anthem, which won't be written for 200 years after her <laughs> death. And by that time, she will have been forgotten as an important, uh, and the whole family will have been fallen and gone by yeah. that time that national anthem comes forward. So I work on this time shifting back and forth and music shifting back and forth to characterize the multiple layers of the psyche and the politics and the events of her life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really wonderful what you do. It's, it's so deep. And, and, you know, as you're, it's so gratifying to hear you, the, the composer, explain this too because, you know, as, as a listener, there, there's a lot that we can put together, but you really never know the, the whole story until you actually hear the author speak, you know, and, and truly explain the fullness of it. It's, it's just amazing. I, I, I always thought it, from the get-go it was brilliant, but, you know, hearing you add even more depth and, you know, layers to, you know, the story of everything you 
had thought of and were working with is, is so fascinating, especially uh, as you mentioned the reference to the Hungarian National Anthem, uh, the reference to Luciano Berrio's piece, just, just fascinating stuff. I, I try to, I try to, uh, one of the things when I, when I have composition students, I always ask them, uh, I, I interrogate them as to where do you get your notes? Why did you choose that note? Because I know that every note that I put down on the page matters to the, the whole architecture of the piece, matters to the listener, matters to, in this case, the story. And, and so these, these little little bits and pieces may never be discovered unless I sort of reveal them. But to me, there's this, there's this gratifying thing when I hear, or, or when I hear, for example, she's singing the prayer of Erzabet to what is almost a medieval chant. It's almost a, a, it's almost a call to prayer, but at the same time, the chords accompanying it are very much of the kinds of chords that Bartok would have used and in fact did use in Bluebeard's Castle. Fascinating. You know, I, I was thinking of another thing you mentioned too about how you have the interplay of all of these this this sort of potpourri of religions going on at the time too, and how you really captured that in the famous prayer, uh, the cat prayer that I, I think all the you know the Countess fans know and and you know are fond of. And um, I, I think sometimes historically people don't really quite realized the, the depth and the scope of, of, of what you said, how, you know, you've, you've got the Reformation going on, and, and even in the Countess's own situation, her mother is a Calvinist. Uh, right. She marries a Lutheran. Her uncle is, you know, a, a Catholic uh, cardinal. Um, and then her husband is going off to, you know, fight the Ottoman Turks and bringing back Turkish culture with him that is sweeping Europe. Uh, yes, and it's kind of funny. You know, the 1600s, the, the Turks are very close to Vienna, but they're also bringing marvelous things like pastries and coffee and, well, you know, cannabis and <laughs> hookahs. Or there are kinds of, you know, things that would delight Europeans but others around the world for, you know, decades, millennia. <laughs> and, and, of course, so, aside, from, aside from all these formal, formal religions, there was the constant sort of background of, of uh, of of pagan be- paganism, yes, uh huh. Yep. And so yeah. when she's singing this prayer, she's singing all of these. You know, people often ask me, "Who's the Lord of Cats?" And if you kind of research that, you discover that the 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 the, the, the Lord of Cats is one of the most powerful symbols in in in, in pagan worship. So uh-huh. wow, you know, it's all there in that it, in that, in that prayer. Oh, you know, you remind me, too, when, when the end was coming and Countess Bathory knew her adversaries were closing in on her, um, you could see she, she had tried uh, the Christian approach, uh, and then at the end she tried diplomacy, she tried politics, she tried economics, she tried brute force, and when none of that worked at the very end, you see how desperate she turns to... Um, I'm thinking of Ershi Majorova, her her forest witch friend, who you know she relies desperately on this woman now at the very end to to make potions for her, to cast spells for her, to help her cast spells against her enemies. She's you know trying everything she can think of, and um, she really you know deeply is 
into um, you know the, the pagan religion and and also to the the herbalism it brings the you know it, it's it's a different type of medicine. I mean, she had health problems and she. Uh, I, I think you know it's kind of interesting. I, she, I'm sure she you know used the health practitioners of her day who were barbers essentially with cutting yeah. and leaching and you know and it's interesting i think she all often you know was, she bought many books on uh, physiology on herbalism and she had apothecaries in her employment and uh, you can really see her turning to uh, her forest witch friend who was an herbalist and you know and and practiced in these things and also also did believe in these spirit gods or these other, you know, methods of, of prayer or reaching out. So it is fascinating how that, that you know, cat prayer uh, really, really, like you say, she's calling on the, 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 the Lord of the cats, but she's also calling on the Holy Trinity. Um, and and it, it's not, I, I you know, I think you and I are trying to, you know, make the point that at that time in history it was more common than people realize for, you know, for someone to practice all different types of religion freely. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, even today, you know, we we forget that our that our uh, Christmas celebration is is actually a, a, an originally a pagan celebration that was was a where to which Christianity was appended. You know, so mm-hmm. so these these kinds of things, you know, still go on. We just have forgotten uh, the origins of many the of them. The origin, and, yeah. And in her case, of course, th- with the, with the Renaissance sweeping across Europe, with all of these things happening with the wars uh, and, and and the influence from the East, uh, and you know, not only that, but of course the things like the failed Children's Crusade, which had happened fairly recently in her time. Um, and not too far away from from uh, Brindisi in Italy, um, you know these these things were all mixed together. Great failures in the Crusades, uh, um, and and the, the the Turks nearly closing in on Vienna. Uh, again, to many of our listeners who are from 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 the states who haven't been to that area, you think of uh, you know Vienna and, and Budapest as being you know as far away as maybe Los Angeles and Chicago. Well, you know. They're a day's ride away in the Uh old day. I mean, they're only like five hours by car. Uh, Right. Yeah. So, so these are these are places that are close close together. And so, when you know when the when the the Ottomans reach, um, you know, Budapest and and that uh, a whole sweep around practically the border uh, with Austria, they're really hours away from Vienna, not days away. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So Very yeah, it really, it, it was a, 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 a many ways a frightening time, and 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 one other thing that that we contextually you have to realize that the average age then of women was roughly, and not those that were being killed, but the average age of, of yeah. healthy people uh, was thirty eight. Uh-huh. She lived to be fifty six, which yeah. means she was ancient. She was, you know, not only was she. Uh, Incredibly old and, in some ways, uh, a, a sage, if you will, have that uh, you know, uh, image in your mind. Uh, she could also be considered not only a, a, the, the the mad countess, but also someone that old could be almost eternal, a witch, perhaps. You know, yes, it, it's right. very difficult to have someone 
live that long at the time. So, yeah, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it would have been like somebody today living to be 110. Right. You know, you remind me, I, I was thinking about in the book how I, I do make a comment. Likewise, uh, Countess Bathory's servants who do, you know, are, are accused and testify to doing a lot of the, the killing and the torturing are always described as being old women. And they'll say, oh, her old women. Um, and, and what I, 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 you just reminded me of this. What, what I want to point out to, to listeners is that when we're talking about old women, our, our version of it today is not the version then. We, they, these women might very well have been, you know, in their late 30s or their early 40s. Um, but again, like like Dennis, like you're saying, uh, the 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 standard of of living was much different. The average life expectancy was very different, and uh, pretty much once once a woman was done having ch- children, uh, for whatever reason, she was then in those days considered old, which by our standards is not necessarily that that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our phrase "life begins at 40" was just the uh, the opposite of what was the case then. The life was ending at 40. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, it reminds. Oh, go ahead. Uh, one of the things that we haven't talked about, and maybe you talked about it uh, before I, I joined you, was the state of being a powerful woman in that particular period of time. Mm-hmm. Did you discuss that at all? I. I did to, to different to to an extent, but but please go ahead. It, it 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 seems to me that when you add up all of the factors that she that that it, at that period of time there were a, a few powerful women. I mean, we can think of Elizabeth I a little bit later. We can think of uh, of, of uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and we can think of um, uh, I just blanked on her name from Portugal. Um, uh, and, Isabella? Thank you, yes. yes. Isabel, <laughs> and and uh, a number of others. But by and large, you know, the government and wars and finances were conducted by men. They were the teachers as well. And so when we are confronted with a woman who is wealthy, who is incredibly well-educated, well-spoken, and is, is quite literate, and if you look at the, the documents that she wrote herself, they are beautiful examples of, of, of writing. Um, and that combined with, with her financial acumen, her ability to negotiate, uh, she was... Uh, I'm sorry? Someone said something. No, not me. Okay. She was a, 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 a formidable force and the fact that she was a woman would have, it seems to me, aroused rage in the male uh, royalty. Do you suspect uh-huh. that? You know, I, I, I mentioned along the similar line that, you know, had it not been for the crimes, she might have gone down in history as, you know, as a very famous woman for her ability, as you mentioned, as a diplomat, as, as a negotiator, running her estates. But I, I do believe that it, it, it incited rage, uh, especially, you know, when, when in fact, uh, I, I was talking before about how much money the king owed her. And uh, after Ference passed away, how she, you know, went to court and she's actually suing the crown, demanding to be paid. And the king at that point called her an impudent woman like how dare you come to my court 
you know, and, and she had every right to. People litigated against the Crown all the time, and she had a very valid claim. But the fact that it was a woman doing this and not a man doing this, well, she was impudent, you know. And, you know, there's kind of the famous letter that she writes to a relative of hers who, you know, thinks he's going to take advantage and starts putting his men on her land in an effort to commandeer it. And she, you know, writes this letter to him. Um, it's it's kind of been famously mistranslated uh, where where the, the I think one of the better known translations says something to the effect of, you know, you you know, in me you'll find a man. You know, don't mess with me. Basically, um, <laughs> it's actually the, the 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 original translation is even a little bit more um, a little bit more scathing, where she she suggests this to to her relative, but um, she's referencing in in her letter uh, the way that uh, uh, kind of well known how another widow had been very, very mercilessly taken advantage of. And in her letter, she references that incident and suggests very strongly, that is not me. And you think you're going to be able to take care, take advantage of me like that? You will find in me a fight, mister. Um, it is very powerful wording that she has. So you really get the sense that she is often I, I would use the word bullied for being a woman, but to her credit, she she stands up and she gives it right back to him. <laughs> I wonder if part I wonder if part of it is a also a post mortem bullying. I wonder how much of of what comes down to us about her behavior uh, was uh, amplified not because of the behavior itself, but because of her sex. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm going to say, I, I, I think, you know, perhaps some women listening, this, you know, professional women can relate to this. And, and, and gentlemen, please, I, I hope you take no offense whatsoever about this. But I, I can say even 400 years later, uh, as a woman who's been, uh, I've, I've worked in law, in banking, in insurance, academics, um, and, and even today, um, it's, it's certainly much better. It's, it's definitely not as bad as, 400 years ago, but uh, I, I think, um, I, I won't say that, you know, it's horrible, but I, I still find, even as a woman in the professions, many times having to speak louder to be even heard, or or sometimes women, I'll notice, will say something, and, and, and men may not listen to it even, but then a few minutes later, a man might say the exact same thing, and all the guys are like, yes, yes, and and the woman sitting there thinking, but I, I just said that. Nobody said anything. It's, it's, it's a very subtle thing that goes on. Even the kind of, I guess you might say, discrimination, sometimes it's very overt, but sometimes it's also very, it's very subtle as well. Um, so one can only imagine, you know, 400 years ago what she, you know, would have endured. And especially, you know, as we, we all know, having this, I mean, this much money, this much property, uh, she's widowed, she has young children, everybody wants it, and she, she, for all intents and purposes, seems like an easy target. Um, so it does sort of beg the question, does she perhaps assert herself with the, the, the disciplining, with, and then may I say, with the torturing, with the killing, as a defense mechanism, you know, don't, don't mess with me. You know, like almost making a monstrous reputation for herself that, you know, to, 
to scare away her enemies. And it's, I will say she was also very coy, though, too, because around the, no, the fellow nobility, she was the picture of decorum. Um, yes. So I think that, you know, the portrayal of don't mess with me was a message that was sent out to the lower classes. Um, meanwhile, in the upper classes, again, she was very straight way. She was, you know, the picture of civility. So it's very interesting how, you know, she can also have the ability or I, I guess maybe the pathology, I, you know, I don't know, to send out messages as needed to whoever needs it. But, again, she's living a very complicated time in a very tragically difficult time. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking more in terms of the, the post-mortem idea of, of, of her, her evilness being amplified, whereas mm-hmm. her diplomatic skills, her intelligence, her medical knowledge, her uh, everything else that would have come down to us from Eleanor of Aquitaine or Isabella or Elizabeth uh, the first, all of these things that came down of, uh, as their sort of greatness uh, in her, uh, the, 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 the jealousy and rage that her, uh, her power engendered uh, caused the, the entire history of her life to have been uh, uh, subsequently uh, uh, damaged and destroyed. Uh, until, yeah. of course, you and a few other people uh, recover her from sort of this 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 mythology that's been created. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think, thank you for saying that. I, it, again, I, I come back to just thinking how tragic it is that, uh, you know, horrible things have, you know, happened. But yet how, as you say, looking back historically, how has she morphed into, I'm going to say it again, and I hope I give no offense, in some ways a fantasy. Um, and as you, as you say, Dennis, anything that she did that was was enlightened or good has been washed over because of the heinous things as well. And, and I think it's always good historically to, to try to look at every aspect. And I've always tried to say, well, here's here's all the evidence make your own decision. At least you have a little bit to work with. And, and if I can bring the original sources to, you know, you can see what people really said or at the time or what was being written or she in her own words. How did she write? What did she write about? Uh, it, it might help create a fuller picture of the person versus the story that has morphed to us and snowballed to us over the years. And, and in fact, if, it, if we did not get that story, if we got the other story, might not she have been the woman who saved Europe from being conquered by the Ottomans? You know, I, I could make a case for that. Because, you know, as we see when, when there's the rebellion in 1605 going on, she does muster armies. She finances part of it. Her husband certainly, we, we, we know as, as I discussed earlier too, his enormous contribution to keeping the continent safe and even right. her political negotiations uh, with the, the papal emissaries did an enormous amount of good uh, to keep the, the European continent safe and, and that again that also seems to be brushed aside. Nobody pays much attention to that or even, even knows about it which is kind of tragic. So yeah, so I think it was very important for you to help recover her from that kind of rubble, um, and it does. It still does. It, it 
doesn't end up making her a sympathetic character. And I don't mean to, to do that. And I, and, and I deliberately leave my epilogue of the opera ambiguous that, that we still see the arrogance, we still see the, 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 the glint of what might be madness, any of those things in her, but we also see a deep, a deep sense of loss of, for what she has done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, can I chime in real quick? I wanted to ask Dennis a question, um, just because we haven't even touched on this fact yet, uh, and, and it's something that's kind of been overlooked. I mean, Dennis, you uh, and I realize we're generations away from you know from Elizabeth, but I mean, you you are in that bloodline. Can you talk about just I don't know what it's well, like, kind of having that that in your. Let me let me tell you as closely as I can the the facts of this. When I was a child, which was in the 1950s, my grandfather said that we were the descendants of an evil person. I knew nothing more than that, okay? And there's no way to trace this back to whether this, fact that this, whether this is true or not. But in the 1950s, I will tell you, it was so not hip to be related to a, a serial <laughs> killer. <laughs> so that I, I take that admission as being, the, the, being accurate. And my, my own father was very, very uh, insistent that this was true. So that's all I know. And, and because of the, as I say, the lack of hipness uh, in the 1950s to be related to this, particularly because my grandfather was, a, uh, was, a, was a, an immigrant from Budapest, um, I, I, I can only say that I, I have that as a belief. Whether it's factual or not, I mean, I suppose somebody would could trace the genealogy and decide. Uh, as a writer of an opera, I wasn't interested. It was the it was the childhood uh, information that I got that drove me to the point of saying I want to take this story and turn it into something uh, uh, that explores who this person might have been. And as as Kim knows, <laughs> a number of people know, uh, I worked for uh, researching for 23 years. Uh, before I set down the libretto for that opera, because it took me that long to decide, uh, based on what I knew, and you know what little I had no information from my family, of course, uh, just that one thing that my grandfather said, um, and and from there on, uh, you know, I, I researched it uh, pretty much on my own, and with the help of books like McNally's famous Dracula Was a Woman, with all its flaws, was a great piece of uh, a starting point. And then when Kim did her, her work, it, it you know fleshed all that out, uh, no pun intended. And um, you know, so I have I have nothing but that little fragment of sort of shall we say negative uh, negative information in a sense that that it's a piece of information that would not have been stated uh, in those days unless it were true. Or believed to be true. Fair enough. I'm I'm just glad I brought it up because I wanted to at least touch on that before we went off the air. We've got about seven minutes, so if you guys want to, you know, get into some things, uh, yeah, that's how fast this has gone. Believe it or not, and that's that's a hell of a good thing as far as I'm concerned because that's how good it's been. But uh, you know, if there are some uh, maybe some things that you two haven't brought up, and and Kim probably has a, a broader base because she's been on here longer, but you know, if there's some things that maybe you two haven't talked about yet, I mean, you know, six minutes to go, go for it. Well, you know, sometimes I got a question one time from someone who read uh, Infamous Lady, which is my book on the Countess, and they, they asked me, they said, you know, she was, she was locked up in that tower for those, you know, three years, and, and you know, what must life have been like for her? And and that's something I, maybe I thought I'd 
kind of speculate on quickly with, with Dennis's help as well. And uh, I, I'm just going to mention one little thing that, uh, I, you know, kind of reflecting on um, women's clothing of the time, and especially uh, a noble woman's clothing of the time. Uh, Countess Bathory is, is someone who from her earliest childhood has maids helping her to get dressed. And, and this is not just because, oh, I'm noble, I'm, I'm too good to put my clothes on. No, it was literally an ordeal putting these clothes on. We're talking about, you know, the, the corset that she's wearing that has to be strapped from behind uh, and pulled from behind. It, it takes some physical strength and it takes another person. She, she literally cannot get out of her own dress on her own because she cannot reach behind and undo the complicated web of <laughs> straps and, you know, crisscrosses and ties and all these things going on. So she's interred in this uh, place. There, there is some speculation. Is it is it truly in the tower? Is it actually in the, the dungeon of the castle keep? But in any case, she's definitely locked away. She has no servant. She has no assistant. And I just beg the question, she cannot get out of this dress. <laughs> and we, she's not given, as far as we know, any kind of uh, scissors or knives or tools, certainly, um, that she could even use to cut it off. So I, I just beg the question to everybody, uh, is she now the gown that she's arrested in? Is she now also condemned for the next three years to wear this thing? I don't know. It's, it's just kind of an interesting question. But I can assure you that given women's clothing of the day, she could not get out of that thing on her own. So maybe over time it finally just fell apart. I don't know. But that's another kind of horrifying thought. Um, I, I addressed that question. I addressed that question visually in the opera. If you see, oh. if you watch the opera, you, you see that the outfit that she's wearing at the very end is the same outfit she's been wearing all along, except that the skirt now is a cage. Ooh, uh huh. She's imprisoned in her own clothing. And just as you uh -huh. say, she's imprisoned in her own clothing. And in, also, in, in terms of symbolism, the strapping from behind of the outfit. This strange um, thing that's behind her uh, that looks like it's kind of a royal uh, uh, scarf of some kind actually is a horse saddle. Ooh. So, yeah, so that she has the saddle behind her and the cage as the skirt. And so the horse from her youth is, has been on her back for her uh -huh. entire life. And then she's encaged in her own skirt. That's brilliant. That, that really is. Again, that's the kind of insight that, you know, we as a listener or a viewer to the piece may not catch, but coming from the composer, that's really amazing. That's very, very powerful. It really speaks of it, you know, plus two, like uh, she grows up, you know, dining on, you know, a certain type of food. She is, she's got a routine, a ritual, and when she's in prison, she's likely eating um probably just what the, the, the guards or the staff had, which is very, very different from what she's used to. So uh, she's, uh, there are some stories that at the end she was, uh, when she ran out of uh, writing implements, she was actually uh, cutting her own wrist to write with blood and that she was writing in blood all over the walls 
uh, railing against the people who she felt betrayed her. I, I, I don't have... I don't have any account for that. The only account we have of, of her actual death comes from a letter from Thurso's uh, 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 cousin who who just sends a letter to the prime minister remarking, oh, you know, um, uh, you know, the widow passed away uh, in her sleep. And then supposedly, according to this letter, it was about two in the morning and uh, she had remarked to her guard uh, who she could speak to uh, outside of, uh, there was like a kind of a slit or a way that she could talk to people outside of her jail, mentioned to him that her legs were very cold, you know, suffering from some poor circulation. And, and he had told her, oh, well, it'll be okay, you know, just go to sleep. And supposedly she put a pillow under her legs and died uh, singing hymns uh, that night that she passed away. And then uh you know, she was then discovered, and then it was reported that she passed away. So, kind of a, a, an interesting way. The legends that have have liked to say that she was found, you know, face down in her, you know, prison, and her jailers saw that she was still the most beautiful woman in Europe. You know, well, didn't quite go like that, at least according to the the source material of what we have, how she passed away. But, mm. so kind of very interesting ending as well. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, I have I have plugs up on our website, but I wanted to, you know, for the listeners that haven't checked out our website, can you all throw out your plugs, you know, for your website, books, things of that nature? Sure. Um, my book is Infamous Lady, and the website is the same, infamouslady.com. And mine is, uh, the opera is Bathory.org, and I'm sure you all know how to spell Bathory by now, Bathory.org. <laughs> <laughs> we wore them out with it, but that's okay. Um, you two are incredible. We'll have to do this again sometime because I had a really good time and it flew by, which, you know, anytime I say that, that's an awesome show as far as I'm concerned. I, you know, it's one of those times where the only time I check my watch is to see, oh, crap, the show's about to end type of thing. So <laughs> you guys, you both came in and you absolutely killed it. Thank you again, seriously, for coming on. I really had a good time. Well, thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Yes, thanks Absolutely. for the invitation. It was a great pleasure. Yeah, you all take care, Dennis, okay? Yeah, you too. Dennis, it was great to, to talk to you. <laughs> great to talk in real life. Bye, everybody. Yeah. yeah. Bye. Have a great thank night. You. you too. Bye-bye. <clears throat> and, you know, that was our, our experts, and, and they were great ones. That's all I can tell you. You know, uh, it was a subject as voted on by you, the fans, and, of course, we bring in, you know, uh, Kim and Dennis and, and they just were a wealth of knowledge, things that, you know, everybody can look up the, oh, she bathed in blood and all those things. And, you know, it's easy to tell stories, but these two actually have done the research for different reasons. And I thought it was really cool. But um, anyway, so that was my solo adventure tonight. I've only done it a few times. Um, coincidentally, our highest rated show of all time was a solo adventure, uh, the Robert Hansen podcast. Was that Robert Hansen or was that me? More than likely Robert Hansen. But anyway, uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next week. Um, we're going to be talking about a movie. Now, what movie will that be? That's uh, kind of up to you guys. If you go to travinvichorror.wordpress.com, and when I say Travinvich, it's T-R-A-V-N-V-I-C.wordpress.com, go vote on a movie. There's a poll up on our website. You can vote. 
you know, as to what movie we should talk about next week. Uh, American Psycho's in the lead right now, and you have until, I believe, Wednesday to vote. So um, it may be American Psycho. It may not be. It may be uh, uh, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. You can follow us on Twitter, Trav and Vic Horror. Um, YouTube, we, of course, are on there. You can look us up. Uh, Vic and I will be getting together on Friday night, Devil's Night, to do a little uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween talk. That's a uh, polarizing movie. So there's going to be a lot of people on one side and a lot of people on the other. We'll see what they think of our opinions. I can tell you right now, I have a very hmm, interesting opinion of the, of the movie. So uh, you'll enjoy that. And uh, let's see, what else here? Uh, a couple weeks, I've, I'm working on a collaboration for a Friday the 13th uh kind of reunion show, uh, a couple guests that I'm familiar with, uh, friends of mine at this point, uh, since Friday the 13th is just around the corner once again, uh, we'll see what we can accomplish uh, for that show. Uh, in the meantime, give us a like on Facebook, we're on Facebook, you know, just look up Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures, you can follow me at PhenomenalTLD on Twitter, Vic's on there, at Vic Von Eric. Jer, our good buddy who fills in from time to time, you can follow him at the one and only Jer on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. You just keep, you know, keep looking out for TravisVicHorror.wordpress.com. We will post updates and you know keep everybody in the loop. And you know, I just want to thank everybody again for tuning in tonight. You know, it was a show you voted on. Oh, and you know what? Last announcement um, for people who are listening right now, you'll be happy to know that our next serial killer that we're going to be talking about is Jeffrey Dahmer. So in honor of Thanksgiving holiday, we will be talking about Jeffrey Dahmer. So, uh, yeah, I will uh, be talking to you then. Later, everybody.